the birth and growth of the church. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you can find that on page 1156, Acts 1. Now, last week we spent some time looking at Jesus' ascension into glory, the implications of that for the first generation of believers and for us. Uh, Lord willing, next week we're going to look at the giving of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost, uh, when, just as Jesus promised, he gives us the helper uh, that we need so desperately. This week, though, we're looking at the ten or so days that elapsed between the ascension and the giving of the Spirit, the time between time when the disciples waited. Now, before we jump into the passage, we need the Holy Spirit to be present among us. So if you're able, if you would, please stand with me uh, as I pray for the Spirit to be among us and remain standing as I read from Acts 1. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word that you have entered into time and given us your truth that we could never have reasoned out or figured out on our own. And yet, Lord Jesus, even with your truth written down in front of us, we will certainly miss it because our hearts are so perverse. Unless you give us your spirit to restrain our sin and open our eyes and soften our hearts that we would understand and believe and apply your truth in our lives today. May you be praised this morning in the reading and the preaching of your word as you transform our hearts. Glorify yourself, Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Acts. I'm going to actually start with verse 12 and read through the end of Acts chapter 1. Uh, This is God's Word. Then they, the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers and sisters. In those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, And let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from Judas, who turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. 
In the course of my working life, at different points, I've been on both sides of the hiring process. Um, We're all familiar with the trying to get a job side, right? Uh, It can be hard, frustrating. It's easy to feel like maybe you're not really fully human because you kind of feel no different than a prized steer being purchased as, you know, they pull your your, your lips back and look at your teeth and everything else. Or maybe a cog trying to be fitted into a mostly functioning machine and they have this one slot and they need the exact right size cog. It can feel like you're less than fully human. But I've also been on the other side trying to figure out how to do this process in a way that results in a valuable employee at the end of it. How do you decide what you're looking for? What qualities, skills, educational background do you want in your prospective employee? And then you get to the actual interviews, talking with someone you've probably just met, don't know from Adam's house cat, trying to decide based on a resume and this brief conversation if they have what it takes to do the job that you need to get done. It felt, sometimes, at least to me, it felt like walking a twisty mountain path at night on a night with no moon, in a thick fog, wearing a blindfold. The cynical side of me felt sometimes like I would be no worse off if I just put everybody's names up on a billboard and started throwing darts at it. And whoever's name got tagged first, that was just going to be the person. Finding the right person for the job is hard. And I wasn't hiring for a complicated job. I was working at a hotel where pretty much anyone could probably have done at least a moderately decent job at work in the front desk. But what about jobs that are more difficult, more specialized? What if I'd been trying to fill the position of apostle? Depending on how you count, uh, there were between 11 and 14 apostles in all of human history. How do you decide? How do you decide who gets to fill that slot? Jesus had told the disciples right before his ascension that they were to wait in Jerusalem for God to fulfill his promise. And we know that that meant wait for the giving of the Holy Spirit, wait for the Spirit to be poured out on God's people. But Jesus didn't tell them exactly what the promise of God was going to look like or how long it would take, only that they were to wait for it in Jerusalem. We can speculate maybe about what they were thinking, how they were feeling in that 10 days, the time frame between the ascension and the the giving of the Spirit. Some people have suggested that they were eager, that they were chomping at the bit, couldn't wait to get out and share the gospel with everybody and were just forced to wait because God had told them to hang on, it's not time yet. And that's possible. But it seems to me that they were less excited and more perhaps fearful because The break in the story that we kind of insert in having two different books, we have the book of the works of Jesus, we call the Gospels, and then we have the book of the Acts, which we separate into two separate stories. And so we tend to forget just how little time there is between the end of the one book and the beginning of the next. It's easy to miss how little time has elapsed. It's really only been about a month since Jesus' brutal execution, when all of the crowds throughout Jerusalem were clamoring for his blood, and the leaders were either goading them on or just giving tacit acceptance of what they wanted. As we saw the night of the crucifixion with Peter, the night of Jesus' arrest and trial, I should say, even the slightest association from even the lowliest person in the hierarchy was enough 
when the servant girl said, He too, he is from Galilee, he must be one of them. So when we see the disciples waiting in Jerusalem after the ascension, it's not terribly surprising that their activities are not, shall we say, designed to draw the attention of the leadership. Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem, and so wait they shall. But what do they do while they wait? To an extent, this is where the story begins to be helpful for us, because we are still waiting for the Lord. We could look at this passage as a guide for making hard decisions, examining how they approach the process of decision-making, and we'll touch on that in a few minutes. But more fundamental than that is the question of how they filled their time while they waited. Now, we tend to think of waiting as sitting on our hands, twiddling our thumbs, doing nothing, basically, for some predetermined amount of time has passed or until some event has occurred that moves us from the passive state of waiting to the active state of doing something. But scripturally, waiting is not a passive thing. Waiting is not time spent doing nothing until you can start doing something. Again, scripturally, waiting in general and waiting on the Lord in particular is itself something that we do. Those of you who watched Downton Abbey, it's been a couple of years, I know, but the the waiting that is envisioned here in God's Word is less like waiting in the doctor's waiting room and more like Carson standing by the sideboard, waiting the, for the, the family there, Lord Grantham and the family, to eat. And he's technically waiting, but he's watching, prepared for anything they need, ready to step in and do anything. There may be moments of apparent inactivity, but he's always careful to watch so that he's ready, prepared to serve where he's most needed. So what were the disciples doing in this period, this constituted their waiting? Two things. First, they prayed, and then they prepared. They prayed, and then they prepared. First, they prayed. This is maybe the most obvious thing they did, because Luke is pretty explicit in verse 14. With one accord, they were devoting themselves to prayer. Now, we know that this wasn't the whole of their interaction with the Lord. They were praying, yes, but Luke ends his gospel by telling us that following Jesus' ascension, they returned to Jerusalem and the disciples were, quote, continually in the temple praising God. They didn't know God's plan in any detail. They didn't know what was coming next or when it was coming or what would be required of them when it got there. They didn't know any of it. So they turned together to God in worship and prayer. Luke doesn't tell us the content of their prayer, merely first that they prayed, and second that they were unified, they were in one accord. And some translations have kind of a a softer word, together there, uh, which isn't wrong, but it doesn't really convey the full depth, the weight of the togetherness that they shared. To give you some idea, the word translated in one accord is the same word that is used to describe our union with Christ. It is a close term. Reminiscent of Psalm 133, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Here's the thing. It is hard to pray with someone and not come closer to them. When we pray, if we're praying at all for real, if we're trying at all to be real in our prayer, when we pray, we reveal our heart. 
our character. The old catchphrase from when I was a kid and probably before was the family that prays together stays together, right? You've heard that? And of course, there are exceptions, we know, right? Uh, But generally, when you intentionally gather together to ask God to be with you, when you tell Him the things that concern you and ask Him to intercede for you and for others, and above all, when you confess your sin together before the Lord, you can't not get closer to those people. We reveal our true selves when we pray because we are talking to the one who already knows us. This is why Jesus' parable about the two men praying in the temple is so sharp. The first man, the one who thanked God that he wasn't like all of those other horrible sinners, he wasn't praying to God. He was just bragging. He was telling everybody in earshot that he was such a great guy. Meanwhile, the second man humbly confessed his failure and begged God to be with him, to accept him. That man understood who God is. The disciples were in one accord together because they prayed together. If you want to see a friendship deepen, pray together. If you want to see a church strengthened, the relationships built not in a closed, cliquish manner, which can happen in any group, but in an open, welcoming manner, if that's your goal, pray together. Honest prayer brings people closer to God and it brings people closer to each other. Why? Because by its very nature, prayer humbles us. You cannot pray to ask God to help you if you don't believe that you need help. It just doesn't work. I can't represent myself to you as having it all together and my life is so great while at the same time praying with you for God to fix the broken parts of me and my life to forgive my sin. Prayer humbles us. And genuine humility is always attractive. So their waiting included that they worshipped and prayed together. They were in the temple continually. They devoted themselves to prayer. What's described here, of course, is not just a brief time, uh, you know, a few minutes here and there, a bit of, a little bit of time each week while we, you know, are in the middle of doing other things, whatever. This is dedicated, concerted effort to be together begging for God to act over and over and over again, daily going to the throne together, hourly even. They devoted themselves to prayer. And it wasn't just the 11 closest disciples either. It was one way or another, the whole assembly of the disciples, and Luke tells us that it was about 120 in number, gathered together in the temple, gathered together in the upper room, maybe gathered together in other places as well, in small groups, in large groups, all of them together, but devoting themselves to prayer and worship. But then what? Prayer is good. Obviously, we need to do that. Worship is good. Obviously, we need to be engaged in that together. But then what? What did they do then? Then they prepared. Now, I said earlier, they didn't know what God was going to do. They didn't have a roadmap. They didn't know what to expect uh, as far as the outpouring of the Spirit would look like. Certainly not. They didn't expect what it actually would happen, as we'll see next week. All they knew was that they should wait in Jerusalem for God to work. And sometimes that's how we feel too. We have sort of a 
general structure of maybe what God might be doing. He said he's going to do some things and we know that he's going to do them, but we don't really know what it's going to look like. But we have no real idea of, of the specifics. We know he's put us here, whether here is a job or relationship or a family or a town or some other situation. We know that he's put us here, but we don't know what the plan is. We don't know why he's put us here. Or maybe we don't know why he's left us here. We cannot see the future. We are finite creatures trapped in time. And even when we can make some sort of educated guess about what might be coming next, we don't know. What are we to do? When Peter speaks to the group, he starts with a reframing of one of the hardest events in their recent experience, Judas' betrayal. Peter says that the Scripture had to be fulfilled, that one of those closest to the Messiah would betray him. He goes on, he quotes a couple of passages from the Psalms to make the point that Jesus wasn't surprised by the way things turned out. Far from it, he'd known all along. He had chosen Judas to fulfill what was already present in his word. So they devoted themselves to prayer and the word of God. When they didn't know what was coming or even when it was coming, when they didn't know what God wanted from them, even who God wanted them to be, they looked to God's word and they prayed it back to him. And then they acted. I said that we are finite creatures stuck in time, but we have access to one who is neither finite nor trapped in time. We study the word that he has given us. We pray, we asking, asking him about it, begging him to accomplish what he has said in it. And then we act, trusting that he will guide us. Trusting that he will work in us and through us. They didn't know what was coming exactly, but prayerfully they prepared for it in practical ways by filling the place vacated by Judas' betrayal. How do we get there? Judas, Jesus had called 12 out of the larger group of those who followed him, out of the disciples. And it is a virtual certainty that the twelve were intended to constitute a renewed or a restored Israel, an expanded Israel, with twelve apostles lining up next to the twelve tribes of Israel. But one had betrayed and now there were only eleven. It would have been easy for them to do nothing while they just kind of passively sat back and waited to punt on the decision of who to nominate in Judas's place or even if to nominate someone. It's easy for us to do nothing while we wait for a sure word from God. I told you several weeks ago, I like surety. I want to wait until I know for absolutely certain that this is the best way to go. But that's not what God calls us to. It's easy to wait until we have surety a sign from the Holy Spirit, but God doesn't ordinarily work that way. He doesn't give us signs written in the clouds or omens to direct our steps. That's superstitious foolishness. Instead, He has given us His Word and His Spirit. In the ordinary course of things, He calls us to step out in faith. You've heard that phrase before. What does it mean? To step out in faith is to study His Word diligently, Believe it and ask him about it, and then to act as best you can, as best you can figure out, trusting him to be at work in your decision-making and in your acting. And this is what the disciples did. 
in there in choosing a replacement. Peter saw that there was actually a prophecy of the betrayal of God's chosen one from Psalm 69. May his camp become desolate, let no one dwell in it. Okay. And then he also saw that the betrayer's place should be taken by another from Psalm 109. So he told the church, I think we need to do this. And here's why I think that. Here is God's word that I am pointing us to. Explaining the scriptures to them. And they did. And we see how they, how they did this. And seeing how they did this encourages us when we have decisions to make. In the church, in our families, even individually, when we face decisions that are difficult and foggy and we can't see the future and maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Who do we, how do we know? What do we do? Following the footsteps of the disciples of the apostles here can help us a lot. Decisions often don't have clear-cut answers. Now, let me be clear here. There are some decisions that absolutely do. If your decision is, should I do this thing that's sinful or should I not do this thing that's sinful, don't do the thing, right? This is not a difficult decision. The Spirit of God will never lead you to sin, period, ever. You know, let's be clear. That said, if the decision we're facing is between options where neither is sinful, where both could theoretically be a good thing and God could be leading in either way, then we are called to pray, to study God's Word, and then act. Acting in wisdom. When we read this passage, we are tempted to look at the decision to choose Matthias as purely chance. They cast lots, right? They threw some dice and, you know, whichever one had the higher number. Cool, he's the new apostle. Total chance, right? But was it actually? They were guided by God's word to make a choice to replace Judas, but then out of the 120 or so of them, they narrowed the list to two men based on some pretty strenuous qualifications. To be an apostle, these candidates had to have been with Jesus for his entire public ministry, all the way back to his baptism by John, straight on through to see the ascension. To be able to witness, to testify by their own experience what they had seen and heard Jesus do and say. Now, it's possible that these two men are the only two out of that 120 that met these qualifications. Not necessary, but it's possible. But having worked out the standard, the minimum requirement, and still having two equally valid options, what are they to do? Then what? And this is where I got hung up when I was hiring people. Uh, these two, or in my case, five people, had equally good qualifications. We think either of them could be a good choice. Now what? Now they cast lots. Now this was a, a common practice in that day, that culture, based on the belief, which we share, that God is sovereign even over the fall of dice. That he can and will use such things to reveal his choice. So when we've done our due diligence, narrowing the options on our hard choice based on God's word and prayer and the wisdom that he provides, then we can just pick and rest in God's sovereignty, that he is fully in control. Our temptation is to focus on one or the other side of that, either to focus entirely on due diligence and ignore the whole rest in Christ thing, making it all about me and my need to be right and my need to figure it out. That's where my in inclination is, right? Or we ignore due diligence entirely and focus all our weight on rest in Christ and say, well, I don't need to think about it at all. I'll just, you know... 
whatever, is, whatever you do is fine. It's, it's great. You don't have to think about it. And that's just fatalism with a veneer of religious talk on the surface of it. We need both. We need due diligence guided by God's Word. And at the same time, we must trust that Christ will work through your due diligence and guide you to the choice that He has directed. John Bunyan famously said, You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Prayer, pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. That great 20th century philosopher, you may have heard of him, John Lennon, uh, said that life is what happens while you're making other plans. We might also say that life is what happens while you wait for those plans to come to fruition. In ages past, the Celtic tribes of Britain had a term for what we now call a liminal space or a spaces on the edge. They spoke of a time between times. Those blurred borders between night and day, between seasons, between one year and the next, like twilight, when one thing is ending but hasn't actually ended yet, another is beginning but isn't yet present as it will be soon, we live and we feel this tension of both things at once. And in a sense, this age of Christianity is all about the time between times while we wait. We live between the times when things seem to be in flux. We live between Jesus' resurrection and his return. Between the already and the not yet. He is risen and Christians cannot be taken from his hand. Your hope is secure. You are in Christ and as such you are fully justified, fully righteous. It is accurate to say that in Christ you are perfectly holy. <coughs> Excuse me. You are perfectly holy, just as holy as Christ Himself is. That when God looks at you or at me, if you are in Christ, He doesn't see the record of your sin. He sees the record of Christ's perfect obedience. And yet, the world and my sin have not yet realized that the war is over, the battles still rage. We are still waiting for Christ to make all things new, waiting for Him to destroy fully and finally the hold of sin over our lives because it still has its claws in us. Waiting for Him to end disease and death and pain and separation, the curse. We are waiting for a time beyond thought and almost beyond hope when, as Tolkien wrote, all the sad things will come untrue. Eternity has invaded time. We live in the already and the not yet. You are already righteous and yet not yet righteous. Already and not yet. The time between times. Longing for the day when it, what was declared about you in justification will finally be completed in sanctification and glorification. And the tension between our holiness and our remaining sin will be erased completely as sin will be no more. We long for that day. 
But in this time between times, there are a couple of things that we remember, that we hold fast to. First, God is sovereign. He has a plan that you cannot thwart because you, dear Christian, you are not more powerful than God is. You are secure in the palm of his hand and nothing can take you out of the palm of his hand, not even you. Second, God is good. He is guiding your steps faithfully as a loving father. So Christian, he is sovereign, he is good. Rest, relax in his care over you. Rest in Him. Pursue wisdom in His Word and in prayer and rest. Act trusting that He will be at work in your decisions and your acting and your waiting and that you cannot thwart Him. Whether you're choosing a spouse or career or what to eat for dinner, God is at work always in everything. He is sovereign and He is good. Let us rest in Him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace, that you are indeed wholly sovereign over all things, and you are good. We pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your goodness, of your sovereignty, that we might be pleasing servants, that we might act in accordance with what is best. May your name be praised, Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.